0: Well, it is good to see you guys. We are here, you have made it to the last session of our politics series. No one has, no fights have broken out. I mean, you guys have been great about this. In all seriousness, we will finish this series on kind of some different perspectives. I think you could tell as we went through it, I really want to talk about a little bit different perspectives and not just go over the traditional partisan kinds of issues. And hopefully, hopefully it's been helpful i'm sure it's been a mixed bag for you some has some hasn't we are uh let me give you a couple housekeeping announcements so we do not have class next week that'll be october 13th because it is fall break for all the schools in our town and it's hard to staff our children's ministry so we don't have any activities at church at all next wednesday but wednesday the 20th of october the next wednesday we'll start a new series in here and i'll tell you at the end what it is i'm really excited to to talk about this series. But we'll start a new uh, study in here on the 20th and then all our programming will kick back off. So just housekeeping wise, if you come next Wednesday, you can have some good solo prayer time. But we won't be having class and that's okay. But on the 20th, we'll have all the classes start back up. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll just dive in. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being born into the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. And Father, that is a blessing, but it also comes with challenges. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and faith to see what we can do to build up for those who need to be cared for, the truth that needs to be spoken. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the heart to know. We thank you for your mercies. I thank you for everyone in the sound of my voice and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be close to us in our time of need and comfort, for you are the great healer. In the name of Jesus, we pray it, amen. Well, here's the number to text your questions to during class, and as usual, number doesn't change, but I think it's also on your handout. So we basically in this series, there are a number of takeaways, and I don't wanna try and you know recap the whole series, but just shifting the prism a little bit on the idea of politics. Politics engrosses us right now, but it has not typically, historically speaking, if you step back and take the long view, think about 2000 years of church history under good governments, bad governments, totalitarian governments, authoritarian governments, uh, democratic governments. of any kinds of governments you can imagine, good policies, bad policies, horrific policies, you know just generally speaking, those things are honestly no more than a footnote to the history of the church. And I know that sounds like how can things that are so important to our daily lives be nothing more than a footnote to the history of the church because it's like weather in this sense. When you went on vacation, you don't remember the weather. You know, it's like when you're there, weather is a big deal but in the perspective of history looking at it you distill out what was actually important and you realize you know actually in hindsight the weather wasn't that important and i know that's going to sound trivial to some people because politics has a greater effect on our lives than the weather typically nevertheless Hopefully you can stretch that analogy a little bit to see my point. And that is when you look at the perspective of 2000 years of church history, the success or failure of the church is really not dependent on governments. So they're important, they are not essential. It's not the most essential thing. Nevertheless, it has an impact on our life and I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit. I wanna show you a couple of charts here and I wanna write on these a little bit. Okay, let me tell you what we're looking at here and I have a point to make. My first point is we live in a time of very partisan opinions. So for example, this basically charts the percentage of Democrats, percentage of Republicans who say that that very much agree with this statement, okay? Basically, so for example, let me just read the first one. The statement, everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed. Of course, we're talking about America here. Well, 28% of Democrats very much agreed with that. And 76% of Republicans very much agreed with that. Well, you can see there's a huge difference in opinion there. You know, just broadly, statistically speaking, people are free to peacefully protest. Only 43% of Democrats believe that's the case. 79% of Republicans believe that's the case. So you see that point number one, that we live in a country that is very divided along partisan lines in their opinions about our nation. But the most interesting part of this chart is not where the Democrats statistically disagree with the Republicans, Here's the thing that'll blow your mind is where they agree. Look at the bottom of this chart. Elected officials face serious consequences for misconduct. Only 21% of Democrats think that's true. Only 32% of Republicans think that's true. Government is open and transparent. 26% of Democrats think that's a true statement, but only 36% of Republicans think it's true. Look at this, the tone of political debate is respectful. A fourth of Democrats think that's the case and only 30% of Republicans. I personally would just wanna meet one of the people in either one of those categories and say, what are you watching? I mean, have you turned on your television in the last two years? But in all seriousness, look how close these numbers get on these topics, let's keep going. Campaign contributions do not lead to greater political influence. In other words, you can't buy an election. Only 24% of Democrats believe that. Only 28% of Republicans believe that. Judges are not influenced by political parties or elected officials. This this one is worrisome. 40% of Democrats think that's a true statement, that judges are not influenced by parties. And same, 40% of Republicans. Two things there, number one, that's pretty low for what's supposed to be an independent uh, branch of our government. But basically the majority of Dems and Republicans say it's not independent. And they absolutely agree in terms of the amount of agreement on that. And then finally, people agree, this one gets to something you already know, but this is also concerning. People agree on basic facts, even if they disagree politically. 27% of Dems, 28% of Republicans agree with that. In other words, most, both think, we don't even agree on the facts, let alone what the facts mean and what we should do about it. So, two things from this chart. Number one, we live in a country with very, with differences of opinion that correlate very well to partisanship. You, you know, see what I'm saying? I mean, I could, it, may, it would be a different thing if you just said, well, It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. If you live in Montana, you tend to think this, and if you live in Texas, you tend to think that. Well, that's not partisan, that's geographic, right? But this breaks down across the country on partisan lines. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have differences of opinion, and those differences of opinion are partisan political differences of opinion not necessarily education level, not necessarily where you work, but the highest correlation there is which party do you belong to? So different opinions, and it's correlated with your partisan party alliance, and no matter what your party alliance is, you think there are problems in this country. Now that's pretty fascinating to me, and that's because they, both parties think you have the same problems. It wouldn't shock me if both parties thought, okay, this country's going to hell in a handbasket. Can you say that on the internet? I guess you can. Anyway, bottom line is both parties think that this country's in bad shape. That doesn't surprise me. But on the same issues, that surprises me. Does that make sense? You've got partisan political differences of opinion but both are agreed that our country is in deep trouble. So, on to the next chart. We not only have partisan opinions, we also have partisan priorities. In other words, what you think is most important in America also varies somewhat by geography. You know, all people in California perhaps, Republican or Democrat, might think that, uh, let's just say climate change is a little higher value than uh, pick another, it doesn't matter, Idaho. You know, the, But the, the high correlation is not geographic once again, it's not education level once again, it is political party. So not only are our opinions Divided along partisan political lines, our priorities are also divided along partisan lines. So, for example, health care. Obviously, there's a great degree of interest in health care. 63% of Republicans said that this issue is very important for their vote, but 95% of Democrats said that that was important for their vote. Climate change. Only 23% of Republicans said this was important for their vote. Now, remember, we're not saying is this an issue or not. This is ranking the issues in relative importance, which is most important to your vote. So it gives you, the, it basically gives you a difference in priorities, not do you care, do you not care. It's the priorities. Well, it's a low priority for the average Republican voter, but it's 88% for Democratic voters. And so you not only have Differences of opinion that correlate to your partisan political party, you have different priorities that also correlate to your different political party. And neither party thinks things are going well. Okay, we got that in our head? Once you know that, everything else makes sense about what's happening with the politics in our country. Okay, And here's why on either side of the two major parties, you think that there is danger. Our country is on the wrong track, okay? And you have half of the people in the country, because it does kind of work out about 50-50 in America, in elections anyway, it's working out about 50-50. And so you think the half of the people don't think what you think is important is, is important. They have a different point of view and they have different opinions about some of the things that you have. You're way up here and they're way down there. Your priorities are different, your opinions are different, and each side thinks that the country is going downhill. The natural, the, the human natural thing that comes into play there, there is no way around it is, you guys are the problem. And both sides are saying that. Now, depending on which side you happen to be sitting here, and it makes no difference to me if you're Democrat or Republican or any of the other parties, but let's just pick the two major parties for purposes of this discussion, and you can understand this. Here's the thing, if you're on one side, you're going, well, of course, they are the problem. The country's going downhill, and it's their fault because they have the wrong priorities and they have the wrong opinions, and what they're doing is running this country down. And what these charts are telling you is that the person on the other side is saying the exact same thing. Now do not hear me to say that they're both right or that, I mean, leaving the issues aside, I'm sure there is a right and wrong on a lot of these issues. In other words, some of these opinions are better than others. That's not my point. My point is you have built in hostility here because both sides think so much alike. If this chart had shown, and just, I don't care which side this is on, I'm gonna make this up, but don't read this as partisan at all. If this chart had shown that Republicans, 99% thought everything's going great in this country, and Democrats thought, 10% of them thought things were going great. They were this far apart on that, right? Then I would say to you, we have a one party problem here. I mean, that's pretty big deal, but that's not the case. Both parties think things aren't going well, and they stand diametric not diametrically, but very far apart on their opinions and their priorities. That means both sides think the other side is the problem. And now, what's happening in each of these individuals, and this is just human nature, what's happening? You don't think things are going well, and you think the other half of the country is sabotaging it, right? Wrong priorities, wrong opinions. That causes you to have, just that that kind of threat causes you to have a fight or flight response. Makes sense, you face a threat, it's a big deal, and if you don't think it's a big deal, pick your favorite TV, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, whatever, they'll be happy to tell you what a big deal this is and make you feel threatened. When you feel threatened, you fight or flight. What happens in fight or flight? Fight is anger. You get angry, and what do you do? You yell at people, you hound people, you burn down buildings, you do whatever. You've seen all of these things I'm mentioning happen in our country. That's a fight response. Flight response is the temptation there is, I want to back out of this. Here's the problem, you can't. You can't get away from this because government is intrusive and it invades your life. It's not like you can go anywhere and just say, I'm out, I'm Switzerland on this deal, you guys do what you want, but I'm not living by those rules. You can't. So what happens when you want to flee and you can't? You freeze. And when you freeze, what happens? Your fear turns into anxiety. Fight is anger. Flight turns into huge amount of anxiety and worry and fear that makes sense what do you see happening in our country you see huge amounts of anger and huge amounts of anxiety now just to make this whole thing interesting let's just throw a little covid in there and what happens this is the average anxiety and depression severity scores in u.s adults it's a cdc chart did i put that up there Oh, well, anyway, it is. Uh, This comes from the CDC. So this is the average anxiety and depression severity scores in US adults during the pandemic. You can see it goes from September 2020 to May. And notice, and by the way, I need to tell you one thing. You see these scores here? Those are well higher than pre-pandemic levels. In other words, it's not like, oh, it went up in the pandemic and now it's back to normal. It's not back to normal at all, this was not normal. Pre-pandemic is on the left of this, but notice what happened. You get a much higher degree of anxiety and depression during COVID. At the same time, you have record levels of partisanship, and that's what those first two charts told us, is that partisanship, meaning my party identification, is what is driving my opinions and my priorities. So add to that the anger and the anxiety from that conflict, now throw in some COVID and get a little more anxiety and a little more depression. And I think that's why our political situation feels so out of control. Would you agree with that? I mean, the fact that it feels to us like things have never been this bad It feels to us like they, and I don't care which side you're on pointing at the other one, are are dangerously ruining this country, right? Both sides think that. Now, I'm not saying both sides are right, I'm just simply saying, I'm just saying your side is right, whichever one you're on. But my point is, is you get both sides saying the other side is dangerously ruining this country. And so the fear gets heightened and the anger gets heightened. So in this situation, just follow me with this little, this is just logic, right? So this is what the data says, this is how people react, and I hope you're realizing, yeah, that seems to be the way people are reacting, and it makes sense. That's why people are reacting this way. Add in, then, what do people do? They say, where can I turn for help? How will I resolve this? And typically, We have been conditioned in America to say, we'll turn to the government to solve this for us. Now that's not always been an American tradition, but if you just think back, we traditionally then turn to the government. That's just like adding gasoline to this fire. Because stop and think about this. I just want you to really step back and think about this. The fact that you have two parties who think the country's going the wrong direction, and think it's the other people on the other side who have different opinions and different priorities, wrong opinions and wrong priorities, right? Whichever side you're on, you think the other guy's got the wrong opinions, wrong priorities. That's not that unusual. And that could be settled in a lot of different ways. Have you seen any rational debates? Have you seen any lecture tours? Because that's what you would have seen at other times in American history, is I'm gonna go out and convince people that they need to see it this way so we can turn the country around. Make sense? That's not what's happening, is it? Because we don't look to individual persuasion to solve the problem. What do we look to? Coercion and the government. My, your ideas are so dangerous that I need to do whatever it takes to make sure my ideas prevail. And the people doing that think they are doing a good thing because on both sides, you think the problem is the other side, right? So people tend to turn to the government for help. All I can say about that is number one, that describes where we are. And I hope it makes sense to you that you can see how did we get where we are. And the the weakest point in that chain is thinking that the government can fix this. Ronald Reagan is famous for saying a lot of very witty things, but the famous, my personal favorite Ronald Reagan quote is this. He said, the scariest nine words in the English language are these, quote, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, end quote. And so... There's one side of this that says government is not the solution, the other side says government is the solution, and we're fighting it out, playing the political game. Now, I'm not saying it's a game in some trivial sense, I'm using it in the analogy. Remember I said Jesus is playing a different game, a different game of life, playing with the same uh, board pieces, but he's not playing the same game. Well, this game is called the political game, and it's very partisan, and you are going to either have a lot of anger or you're gonna have a lot of anxiety. That's the way this game is played. So God's people traditionally, though, have not turned to government for help throughout all of history. This is the Jews. Think the psalm written, it's a psalm of ascent. It's probably written about 900 B.C., It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I'm gonna argue that the Jews weren't playing the political game in the same way everybody else was playing it. And partly because they never had any political power. It's very, very short windows that they ever had any political influence in their history but they turned to God because they thought God was the source of help, not kings or queens or governments or anything else that they knew could be very fickle. The very Pharaoh that let them uh, took care of them in Egypt, the next Pharaoh that came along didn't know Joseph and turned them into slaves. I mean, they understood the fickle nature of government. They understood the dangerous nature of government. And so they turned to God. They turned to God because he was the source of help, but he's also, look at that, Why do they describe him this way, the maker of heaven and earth? Because they knew he was sovereign, that God is actually more powerful than any of the governments on the earth. And so the Jews turned to God for their help. They didn't tend to turn to government. When we were talking about Zechariah, this is a story at the very tail end of the Old Testament, and they had no political power, and they're trying to rebuild their temple, which the... Babylonians have completely destroyed. And God sends this word to Zareb Babel. He's the Jew that's the leader of the group. This is the word of the Lord to Zareb Babel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And sure enough, they didn't have any might, they didn't have any power, and yet they prevailed. In our last lesson, we looked at the early church. Leave the Jews now, come into the era of the church. And we talked about The church was persecuted brutally through the second half of the first century. Think from Nero's reign, actually about 64 AD is when Nero got really hot after the Christians. Before that, it was Jewish persecution. Roman persecution lasted till after 300 AD, 250 years and it was brutal and hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed. That doesn't even count the ones who lost all their possessions, were thrown in jail, were tortured, unbelievable. But the early church did not see government as their solution to that problem. We talked about the Apostle Paul and we talked about how he, uh, I showed you the cases as we went through, how he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned and left for dead, he was, I mean, his interaction with the government was almost universally, almost universally bad. But the book of Acts really doesn't talk much about government, it's sort of a side note to the success of the church and the thriving of the church. And here's how Paul kind of summarized this. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And let me paraphrase this a little. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to have policies that make sense in my nation and I know what it is to have policies that don't make sense. I know what it is to have the freedom of religion and I know what it is to not have the freedom of religion. What's he saying here? He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether in America or North Korea, whether a good government or bad government, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ, but more particularly in the book of Acts, as you look at it, is Christ in the Holy Spirit, the comforter that he has sent. The power of the Holy Spirit. You see all through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit's doing this, doing this, doing this, through these people. Unbelievable persecution and yet, The church is growing, the church is growing. All those people came to Christ. It's just, wow. Government basically was not, it was an immediate factor in people's lives, but it didn't stop the church at all. The early church became very comfortable, this was our lesson, became very comfortable without knowing the outcome of their efforts. They became very comfortable trusting the outcome to the Holy Spirit and being faithful to God, but not necessarily needing to win. And so you see this idea of instead of turning to government to solve our problems, it's like, I'm gonna to turn to the maker of heaven and earth. I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to let go of a need to control the outcome of this. That's basically the history of the early church, and that's still what's going on with us. The Holy Spirit is still working in you and in me, in the midst of this game we call politics in America in the 21st century. And so we don't have to play that game. Now, hear what I'm saying. Does that mean that we don't speak truth into several issues? No, we'll definitely speak truth into issues. We just don't need that game to turn out the way we want for God's purposes to be fulfilled. In other words, you're free to act faithfully to God without worrying whether or not you win, because the, ad, the, the point comes up is that you, don't, you can't win. The politics game doesn't have a winner. It has mad people and anxious people, but it doesn't have any winners, and it just repeats that cycle. So here's what the political game looks like, and this is the way the scripture talks about the Holy Spirit says there are basically two kinds of people in the world. And the first kind of person are the people whose sinful nature, the spirit, I'm gonna give you several synonyms that the New Testament uses, the spirit of this age, the spirit of the ruler of this age, the sinful nature inside us, the self-centered nature. He says, basically, if you are guided by that nature, then your behavior, your actions are pretty obvious. You'll see sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft. Pay attention to these. Hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. He said, and I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God because basically God doesn't work in us through our sinful nature. In fact, as we come to trust Christ, Paul says, our old self our sinful nature was crucified with Christ, is died and we have been raised to walk in newness of life. That's the essential idea of what it means to be saved, is to die to self, live to Christ. And there's so many verses, you see this all through the New Testament. Jesus saying, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Uh, you get the whole idea of repentance, which means to turn around and leave this way of life and pursue a different way of life, etc. But for those who have the Spirit of God, it says this, but as opposed to the sinful nature, the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if the Spirit is in you, what it is growing in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Okay, this is a simple multiple choice. If you were gonna think about the political game, current events, uh, basically the partisan political environment in America, the reliance on government to fix our problems, which of these two categories do you observe? Yeah, duh, you see factions, envy, you see anger and anxiety and all the things that come from that. And that, those kinds of things, that's why I say Jesus played a different game. He isn't motivated by the same motivations. He isn't trying to reap the same kind of quality of life. The Spirit wants to work in us and I think this is really a powerful idea to develop love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You cannot cultivate those things playing that game. You can speak into the public square, you can speak on issues, you can vote on issues, but you can't be partisan in a sense that you can't have your identity to be found in this set of opinions this set of priorities or this set of opinions and this set of priorities. As I said before, Jesus didn't come to take a side in this, he came to take over. And what he wants to do is he wants to develop in you and in me joy, love, and peace, not partisanship and dissension and anger and anxiety. So what I wanna look at is as we go into this world, we are in the world but not of the world, being guided by the Holy Spirit is a different kind of game to play. So I'm actually trying to get pretty practical and we will by the end of this lesson get extremely practical, but what I want to try to describe to you is it's not, tell me how a Christian plays the politics game, no. Will you speak in the public square? Yes. Could you run for office? Absolutely. But you can't play that game. It only has two outcomes, anger and anxiety. You're going to play a different game because you have something different inside you that's cultivating very different things in you. And I think that will actually have a bigger impact on our nation than any particular policy or any particular law. So let's move on. The Holy Spirit is not something that is a self-help mechanism. The Holy Spirit is something you cultivate. Listen to how the scripture talks about our lives. Do not kid yourself. God cannot be mocked. You can't fool God. You will reap what you sow. If you sow to please your sinful nature, you will reap destruction. That list we just talked about and you can see Things on that list in a lot of people and that's because they are sowing to the political game. They're sowing to their sinful nature. Those who sow to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. The spirit is something that's cultivated in us and I like that word cultivated for this reason. If you've ever done any farming or gardening, you realize that you can't make anything grow. And in our lives, self-help, Doesn't work. Oh, I'm not saying you can't do a self-help mechanism and be a more patient person for a while. Be a better husband, be a better wife, uh, be more timely, get places on time, be more organized. People do that all the time. And you'd think if it worked, why are there more and more and more self-help books? Because it doesn't work long time. It's a short-term behavioral fix. Am I against it? No, I'm not against it. I just don't think it's a long-term solution. If you do it for short-term results, then by all means, that's great. But the idea of a gardener is not, you realize when you get there is, I can't make this happen, but I can cultivate it. I can encourage it. I can put a seed in the ground. I can accept Christ. I can receive the Holy Spirit. I can water it. I can pull up the weeds and then, I can't make it grow, but it grows. And God makes it grow. The scripture uses this, it said, Paul planted this seed and Apollos watered it, but God's the one that made it grow. Well, any gardener knows that. You can't make it grow, but you can cultivate it. And that's exactly what I wanna talk about is you can't, because I know what you're sitting there thinking, or you should be. I'm a Christian, but Terry, I gotta tell you, I'm really finding the love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, many of those things are elusive in my life. And I'll give you an opinion as to why I think that is. I think that we are conditioned, it's just who we are. We are independent people, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and uh, very self-oriented and self-sufficient kind of people. Those are still values, uh, lingering values in in our culture consequently we don't know that the holy spirit is in us but we think then i need to be more loving and i need to be more peaceful and i need to be more joyous and i would agree with that in this analogy you need to cultivate those things in your life you can't make them happen so stop trying to make them happen with self-improvement in other words yield to what the Spirit is doing in you. All the things that you're gonna do to get to achieve love, joy, peace, patience, etc., are gonna be things that cultivate it. You need to let the Spirit do that work in you. Does that make sense? In other words, instead of trying harder, just surrender harder. In other words, get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do in your life. And you and I will then cultivate it. And I'll tell you what I mean in specific terms about what that cultivating is. Here's uh, how Jesus explained this a little bit. He basically is going, here's the way I'm gonna uh, summarize this, is you can't think and feel wrongly and act rightly. Self-help is based on the idea that I can change my behavior. The Holy Spirit is not interested in your behavior primarily. The Holy Spirit is interested in transforming your heart and your behavior will follow. Does that make sense? That's why it's enduring. That's why the work of the Spirit is transformative. The work of the government is behavioral, coercive. And again, I say that word in a neutral sense in that laws are coercive, they're not transformative. Not many people have had their minds changed, I've noticed lately, by any of the Supreme Court decisions that have come down. And very few people I've said, you know, I used to be so against that, but now that the Supreme Court says it's okay, I just feel like everything's good. No, you don't. You say, well, I guess that's what we're going to have to do, right, and that's good, because you live in a civil society, I'm all for. You know, basically, Christian default is obey the laws as long as they don't contradict God and obey the laws. That's a good thing, but nobody's heart's being changed. Nobody's mind's being changed. So here's what Jesus says. He says, don't you see that whatever enters your mouth goes to the stomach and out of the body, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. He's talking about what makes you unclean. He said that those are what makes a man unclean for out of the heart, what do they mean when they say heart? Emotions and thoughts. They put those two together. And so out of the heart, Feeling and thinking come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. What's Jesus basically saying? He says, if you just look at the behaviors and you focus on the behaviors, you're at the tail end of that deal. He said, it's what goes on in the heart and the mind that manifests itself there. The spirit is here to transform our hearts and our minds. You can't think wrongly and act rightly. James says it this way. I'll just go ahead and skip to the last one. He says, he's talking about the tongue. He said, some of you say you're good Christians, but with the same tongue, you bless God and you curse the person that's made in God's image. He said, what's up with that? He said, there's something wrong here. And he kind of summarizes it. He said, a fig tree doesn't bear olives and a grapevine doesn't bear figs, and a salt spring does not produce fresh water. What's he saying? You can't be wrong in here and be right out there. And so the Holy Spirit seeks to transform us from the inside out. How does the Spirit do that? This is a a key, pivotal passage in my understanding of what God is doing in us. After you're saved, after you've surrendered your life to Christ, what is the Spirit doing in us? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. I'm gonna bring that down and apply it to just our little series. Do not play the partisan political game anymore. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is why I think the fruit of the Spirit is elusive to us is we are trained and we are used to making it happen. I'm gonna be more loving, I'm gonna be more joyful. By golly, I'm gonna be more joyful, you know? I'm gonna be more peaceful. I'm gonna turn off the TV. No, I can't turn off the TV. What in the world have they done today? You know, basically, we wanna take control of that. But the Spirit's power is transformative by renewing our mind, and I think that's why this is elusive for us. It's, It's like the old saying it's insanity to think that you can do the same things and get a different result. I mean, this is we've known this a long time, and that is that if you really want things to be different, if you wanna find the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, then something inside has to be rewired, transformed, renewed in some sense. That is what Christianity is about, is completely reorienting our world. Here's a good example of this. Have you guys ever had, I bet you've had this situation happen to you. So you know when you have a GPS on your smartphone and you turn it on when you're driving in your car, this is like the best invention ever of the 20th century, in my opinion. I mean, medicine, you can take it, you can keep all the miracle medicine, just getting me where I need to go by this nice Australian lady who's talking to me, because I chose the Australian lady. And so with her really Australian accent, She tells me where I ought to turn. Anyway, so she talks to me in this pleasant voice and tells me where to go. I no longer, I am so stress-free. I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. No, I'm just kidding you. But basically, you get this. All right, so have you ever had this happen where you go, give me the directions? Yeah, okay, go there. And you go, at the next intersection, turn right. And uh, so I turn right at that intersection, continue for five miles, and so you do. And then you, you get off course, like you, you just don't realize it and you turn and you go, you know what, I know a better way and you turn. And then it says this, recalculating route. Have you heard that? Recalculating route. At the next, at the next stop sign, turn right. I me mean, let you in on a secret. If you don't at that point, it'll do recalculating one more time. Recalculating the route and it'll give you one more chance and then the Australian lady runs out of patience. You know, it's like, at the next light, turn left, and then if you don't, turn around. I mean, she gets a little testy, you know? And she won't say anything after that except, turn around, turn around. What about the recalculate? Turn around, you know, that's all that she will say. That's what we are like sometimes By the way, do you know what the theological word for turn around is? Repent. Jesus preached repent. And all repent means is, you're going the wrong way and I'm getting a little ticked. Now really, he said, you're going the wrong way, turn around. That's literally what repentance is. And so the gospel is all about repentance. And I'd like you to think about it in that kind of a helpful way. It's like, Jesus is like, you just gotta turn around. You know, this road isn't going anywhere good. This political game, let me put it back in our framework again, is only gonna make you angry or anxious. I'd like for you to turn around now, and I want to take you a different route. Does that make sense? That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The Holy Spirit is your GPS inside you. And the Holy Spirit, if you will listen to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you know what the Holy Spirit will do in you? Cultivate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what God is doing inside you if you don't get in the way. Does that make sense? That's what the Spirit wants to do in your and my life. Okay, So then I wanna go into, we'll stop here for questions, and then I wanna talk about really practical things. Okay, so what does it look like to cooperate with the Spirit? What does it look like to cultivate the Spirit? All those words are just synonyms for what does it look like to not have to be in charge? What does it look like to make effort without being in control of how everything turns out? Okay, questions first. You were talking about um, self-help processes. How do you compare the 12-step process to a self-help process, and is it a short-term method as well? Yes, good question. All right, I'm gonna be, well, I'm not gonna be careful, I'm just gonna be precise. I'm a fan of the 12-step method because it has helped a lot of people. But I would would tell you that the recidivism rate for 12-step is high. And that, I'm not criticizing the 12-step method if somebody's out there and saying, it turned my life around. Hallelujah, I'm grateful that it did, okay? But generally speaking, 12-step method can be effective, but it has very high recidivism rates. And so it is a technique and and I pray that it does work for you and that you never drink again. I mean, I have no criticism for that. I think what makes 12-step a little more effective, now I'm speaking as a matter of opinion, as opposed to data. What I said to you about the recidivism rates, that's data, this is my opinion. I think 12 steps has been fairly effective because 12 steps is not purely secular, meaning you know, as part of the 12 steps is acknowledge that I'm not in control, there's a higher power. It's not Christian per se because it's used by a lot of other people, but part of the effectiveness is that key idea. That key idea isn't necessarily Christian, but that idea coincides with Christian, and then if you do 12 steps the way we do here, We happen to use uh, Celebrate Recovery as the basis for most of our 12-step model programs. We have other models as well. There are other models out there as well, but we like that and we use it. We are overtly Christian, we're a church, we're allowed to be for the time being, overtly Christian about it, and so we talk about God being part of that, and I think that that's why it has been helpful. But I would say that without the Holy Spirit working in us, it is self-empowered rather than Spirit-empowered. But I'm very glad for the successes. I, I, I make no criticism of the successes, and I'm happy for them. Is there no such thing as righteous anger, for example, Jesus and the money changers in the temple? Yes, good question. Uh, this is sort of the uh, first of all, well, never mind, we'll get into that later. Basically, is there such a thing as righteous anger? Yes, there is. You should be indignant, you should be angry about certain things. That's not, and I suspect the questioner. that's not what you're seeing. You are not, you're seeing rage in our culture. You're not seeing righteous anger. Uh, Jesus was righteously angry at sin. He was angry at what was being done to rob people of eternal life. And even so, Jesus, doesn't live a life of anger. This is what's really bothering me. So, yes, to the extent that you can be like Jesus and be righteously angry, remember what uh, the scripture says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. In other words, can you be, technically speaking, can you be righteously angry at some point about something? Yes, you can. Can you be an angry person? Of course you cannot be and that's what the political game is about. So that's a, that's a good point, but it doesn't change, doesn't change the, the fact or the point. So let's talk about, in the interest of time, we move on and tell you this. So when you turn around and you say, okay, Holy Spirit, GPS, Australian lady, you tell me where to go. And you know, every time I've done that, honestly, I get where I'm going. And so the Australian lady's pretty good. Holy Spirit's even better, okay? Holy Spirit will get you to the fruit of the Spirit because that is what he does. Look at this, humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand. A lot of the New Testament is telling you, I want you to think about the commands in the New Testament this way. It's not the only way to think about it. But as you read your New Testament and you read command, because this is a command, this is an imperative. In other words, this isn't a, gee, I wish you would consider casting all your anxieties on God. That's not what this said. This is a command. There are a lot of commands in the New Testament like this is what you need to do. I would like for you to think about them as this is the turn you need to make at the next stop sign. At the next light, you need to turn left. You need to go one mile and do this. These commands are this is what you do if you want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. That's a really healthy, a really biblical way to think about the biblical commands. This is God saying, you wanna cultivate the spirit? You wanna cooperate with the spirit? Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up at the appropriate time. Throw, this word cast is literally, throw all your anxiety on God. Why? Because he cares for you. And that's one thing I want you to remember is God loves you. God loves you more than you can comprehend. He will take your anger and he will take your anxiety. And if you don't wanna play that game and you go, what do I do with my fear and my worry and my anxiety or my righteous indignation, you know, can I go break some windows? No, you can't. But bottom line is, what do you do with that? Well, let me tell you how you cooperate with the spirit. Throw that onto God let go of that anger let go of that anxiety become comfortable because the spirit will reassure you god loves you oh by the way he's got this and no offense he doesn't really need your help to set the world right he's already got a plan yes well his plan does not seem to be working you know that's my problem right it's god i'd like to talk to you about this really do you guys really want to have that argument with god i don't want to have that argument with god it's like yes sir i do think you know what you're doing cast your anxiety on him, and come back to this. You don't have to be anxious about anything, but what? In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, because that resets your perspective. In other words, I wanna pray about this because I'm angry about it, or I'm anxious about it, or I'm fearful about it, and maybe it's a political thing, maybe it's relational, whatever it may be, First, I wanna step back and say, I am grateful that you are in charge and I am not because I will confess to you, God, I don't know how to fix this, but you do. And so you are gonna trade your anger and anxiety and fear for peace. Look at what this says. It says, in every circumstance, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what, he will do exactly what you asked. No, that's not what it says but that's okay, that's not really what you need. What you want is peace, and he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, then take your anger and your anxiety and your worry and pray it, cast it on God in prayer, and you will find that trusting the Spirit means I get to my destination of love and joy and peace far more often than when I jerk the wheel and decide I'm gonna make my own route. Does that make sense? You can exchange your anxieties and let the spirit be responsible. You can pray and say, God, I'm afraid things aren't gonna work out with my son the way I want them to. I am afraid that the fill in the blank, Republicans, Democrats, marijuana party, are going to completely ruin this entire country. I fear that, I'm angry let your spirit change my heart to trust you with the outcome. Give me the wisdom and the courage to speak your truth and love wherever I can. And God, take this anger and anxiety away. You be in charge, I don't wanna be in charge. This is the kind of prayer, you can pray that prayer 500 times a day, seriously. And then in a week or two, you realize, I'm not praying that prayer so much. And over time, the spirit will transform your heart. Not a quick fix, but a permanent fix that's the work of the spirit in us and i love this passage because this is god's prescription he loves you you can cast your anger and anxiety on him in fact you can give it to him and he will replace it with peace like i'm so glad i prayed that because you know what he's in control and i'm not and i can just go be faithful and i can leave this mess to him because i can't fix it anyway all i have is the illusion of being able to fix it get the right candidate in Vote here, send money here, do this, play this game, and we can win. The only winner is God, and God will shape us in that way. So let's talk about some takeaways. First one is this. Don't worry, don't be angry, God is in charge. You say, oh, I know that. Yeah, I know you know it up here, and I know it up here. It's in those moments when I recognize I'm afraid, I'm anxious. I'm angry, I want you to transfer that knowledge here and say, wait a minute, deep in my bones, I don't just know God is in control, I know God is in control. I trust that God is in control. Neither anger or anxiety is the product of faith. Both of those are product of fear and the sinful nature in us that wants to control the outcomes. We are charged with speaking truth and grace, not controlling the outcome. Newsflash for you, you are not responsible for fixing the United States of America. You're not able, but you're also not responsible, and that's a good thing. You're saying, yeah, I regret very much seeing our country go the way it's going. I I feel that way. I regret very much. I do think that there are things in our country that are going wrong, and so does everybody else. In fact, we kind of agree on on the reasons, right? based on the charts I showed you. I regret that very much. But that's not what my hope in my life is built on. I have a far greater hope than that. I have a God that can fix this if it needs to be fixed, and I have a God that can remake it if it needs to be remade. Now, I know that it's hard to hear me say these things and go, oh, you're out there in the ether. No, I'm really not. This, this is what the Bible wants you and me to do. Let the Holy Spirit work inside you. We're called to speak truth and grace. And we have the luxury of speaking truth and grace without having to make things work out, without having to win. I really want you to stop and think about that. I'm not being glib. It is unbelievable when you realize you just get to love people, you just get to lovingly speak truth to people, you just get to go stand up for people that have no one to stand up for them, and you don't have to worry about winning the game. That's unbelievably less stressful. In other words, do you mean I just have to go do this and nobody's gonna come back on me if it doesn't turn out exactly the way I want? No, God's gonna work this out for good. You have the luxury of speaking truth without having to win the game. And then finally, I've said this before, but I wanna remind you of this, our sufficiency in Christ christ is enough for us whatever the outcome we have christ and so we don't need anxiety we don't need anger we don't need fear we have christ and it may go the way we want it may not go the way we want but it will go the way god ultimately says it's going to go and so the sufficiency of christ in our life gives us the luxury to advocate for other people and so i think for we as christians if we're going to be speaking in the public square, I really like it to be speaking on behalf of people who are suffering. And that is really everybody's suffering one way or another, but I really like to see us advocating for people who cannot advocate for themselves. That's the example I see of Jesus. Jesus loved everyone, he loved the Pharisees because they were caught in a prison of their own making. I love fill in the blank, Republican, Democrat, whatever, who are doing all these bad, because they are caught in a trap of their own making. The outcome for them is anger or anxiety. When you step out of that game, you can have compassion for people. There'll be judgment for people that do evil as well, by the way, but you now have the luxury to go speak for the people that are getting hurt the most, and that, as Christians, is what I really like to see us doing, is I'm not so worried about me. It's like, oh, Terry, what do you need? Your taxes are going up. Maybe you'll get put in jail someday for, quote, hate speech for something you said on stage and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, yeah, but you know, I've got a God and I've got a Holy Spirit that's kind of taking care of all my needs. As Paul, remember what Paul said? I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. He said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The fact that you know that Christ is enough for you, you can now expend your effort for someone else. I want you to think about that. I could tell from your language like, is he crazy or is he right? But bottom line is that's powerfully profound. Once you get that idea, you are completely free to go advocate for other people because you have sufficiency in Christ. So those are kind of some of the takeaways. And the last thing I'd like to say is this, if you get nothing else out of this entire series, just remember when things are tough, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Your God said, this world moves to what my spirit says it moves to, not by might, not by power, no matter what it may seem to you, that everything moves to God's purposes. The fact that I don't understand them all is completely irrelevant, because I completely trust the judge of the universe. And so my hope for you is this, is that as you go into the fray of work, uh, vaccine or no vaccine, mask or no mask, immigrants or no immigrants, uh, you know, pick a topic. I mean, there are no shortage of topics that can get you riled up. As you go into that, my hope is that you realize and that you have this sense of peace knowing that I have the spirit and Christ is enough for me and my God is sovereign even over this mess. Amen? Think that, your anxiety level will go down. Next series, two weeks, here's my, this actually ties into this, but we're actually gonna do something else. This is really true. Everybody's life is governed by the stories that you are living by. Here's another way of saying it. Everybody's got a tape playing in their head and everybody's living their life by some kind of a story. And I wanna talk about some stories that are worth living by. The problem is a lot of those stories, a lot of those tapes are not worth living by. They're not true. And I wanna look into the Gospel of Luke, and I want you to look at the Gospel. Gospels are history, the Gospels are a record of what Jesus did, the Gospels are miracles, the Gospels are parables. I wanna turn the prism and just look at the Gospels from a little different perspective. That one of the things Jesus was doing was recording tapes telling you stories that are worth living by. And that's what we'll do next time. Thank you guys so much for your attention.